We read, last week, we read a Parsha that was called Shmini, and, you know, we've moved on, obviously. In, in, in the Torah teaching spectrum, as the schedule goes, it doesn't matter. If you, miss, if you miss a week, you miss something great, and so by the next week, you're supposed to be on to something else, but, but I, I can't do that because the week before we read from Shmini, I had already heard a teaching on this that just resonated with me so deeply that I thought, gosh, I want to I wanna share that, but Boaz was going to be here. So what I'm going to share with you today, I've been chewing on and meditating for three weeks, meditating about. And I wish that we could just sit down in like a focus group and talk about what I'm going to talk about and just spend the afternoon doing this because... I think that what we would have is a, a life-changing experience. And, you know, it's always the case that I, a message that moves me, my hope and prayer is that it moves you. Um, and that's all I can pray. But I can tell you, as far as moving messages, this is probably the most moving message that I have given in a long time. And so I, I want you to just sit back and take some of this in because the, the, the Parsha Shemini contains one of the most powerful scenes in the Torah. Uh, especially for us as human beings. Sons and daughters of the Most High were called to be lights, were called to be disciples. But yet, in all of this, we are always on the precipice of failure and sin. Though we're called to be this, we're always hinging and teetering on the border of failure or sin. And, and what I'm hoping and what I learned and what I hope that you'll learn today and that others will learn is that we can be something amazing for God even in that precarious position which we live. Very, very much so. That even in our weakness, that He wants us to be from our weakness, this amazing and awesome creature that He's made us, even in our failures. And I think that's something that we all need to hear at times in our lives. Because if you are like me, at, at least one time, you've had a failure. You've had a shortcoming. But the thing about Leviticus and the thing about the Torah in general for so much of Protestant religion, the same lady who sent me this message today, she was saying, again, she's from my Ha'ya Sod class, she was saying, you know, I, I, I went to my, I'm realizing from digging in how little I know and how little the teachers that I've listened to know about the Bible. And I went to one of my, pre, a priest and I asked him something, and he said, we don't teach the Old Testament. Now, that's not common, obviously, but it is. It is in a certain kind of way. It is. Now, here's something that I heard today, and I think this is a message in and of itself. I just didn't have time to articulate this. I was listening to a teacher that Kelly sent me, and he was talking about the internet. And when we go and we log on to the internet, and we see these beautiful, beautiful websites with images and pictures and colors and text and graphics and videos and everything that's going on on the internet. And we look at it and we're, we know right away what a good website looks, at, looks like. 
But behind the website is nothing but code. Nothing but symbols and numbers and words and different things that make the internet do that. And I'll share what I really want to say about that, only to say this. That image to me became so clear for the book of Leviticus and the Torah itself for mainstream Yeshua followers, for, for disciples, for, for Christians, for Protestants, that when they look at the Torah, what they see is code. All they see is numbers and, and sacrifices and uh, things that just that doesn't mean anything to me. Like if I said, go to this beautiful website and look at this thing, and all you see is numbers and letters and backslashes and colons, you're missing the beauty. You're missing the beauty. And for us, as Messianic Jews, who have Jews and Gentiles who have Yeshua as a filter and Hashem, Who's, who's uncovered this beautiful code for us. Even we, though, sometimes can struggle to see past the code. And this is a Parsha, Shmini, that is like that. And so I want to take you past the code today so that you don't miss the beauty of what's actually going on. Because when we're surrounded by sacrifice and rams and guts and tabernacles and blood and all this, if you can understand this in the Jewish context, you will completely miss it. And what is the Jewish context? <laughs> it's going to include the sages. It's going to include Rashi. It might include the Talmud. It might include I don't know what. But without that, you have code. You do not have the picture. You do not have the beauty. And so we're going to look. But what I want to end it with is, of course, what else? How does this only amplify and deeply beautify what Yeshua has given us? And that's where we'll end up. But I'm asking somebody in the room as we start to see themselves in the story that we're going to study today. For who you think you are. <clears throat> and then at the end, I hope you'll dump that in the place of who God has called you to be. <coughs> the story. The story in Parshat Shmini in Leviticus 9. It says this. It was on the eighth day. Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, unblemished, and offer them before Adonai. And to the children of Israel speak as follows. 
Take a he-goat for a sin offering and a calf and a sheep in their first year unblemished for a burnt offering and a bull and a ram for a peace offering to slaughter before Hashem and a meal offering mixed with, uh, mixed with oil for today Hashem appears to you. They took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting and the entire assembly approached and stood before Hashem and right there is code for the majority of the world. Come on, man. The farm animal thing, the bulls, the goats, the slaughter, the blood, the tent, the will. Come on. Yeshua did away with all that. I don't have any significance for that, and it's barbaric to top it all off. To think that God is satisfied by shedding the blood of animals. Oh, come on, man. And so right there, We've lost the majority of people who read the book of Leviticus because they look through this book and where it talks about sin offering, ola, burn, uh, all these different offerings and you shouldn't do this with blood and it's just code, code. Jesus did away with all that, they say. Well, if you stick with me, I'll show you what Yeshua really did away with. But continuing in verse 6, this comes along. Moses said, This is the thing Adonai has commanded you to do. Then the glory of Adonai will appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and perform the service of your sin offering and your burnt offering and provide atonement for yourself and for the people. And there it is. There it is. One of the most amazing messages from God about forgiveness, empowerment, grace, about a future, about overcoming failure. Do you see it? Not yet. Because even in the Messianic synagogue, so many of us see code. So let's see what the artist, let's see what the code maker is really saying. Come near, it says. Moses said to Aaron, come near to the altar. Perform the service of your sin offering. Come near. There is a question in that. There is a question in verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, come near. What is the question? Why the preface? Why does Moses need to say to Aaron, who already knows what to do and how to do it, why does he need to say to him, come near to the altar? Shouldn't he already be there? Is Moses giving an instruction? Did Aaron forget how to walk? Come on, Moses, Aaron, right, left, right. Come near, Aaron. What is he, a numbskull? When he's preparing for one of the, the, the greatest thing in the world to bring sacrifice, why is he at a distance? Why the preface? The language, according to the Midrash, is very purposeful. It is Moses' response to Aaron's hesitation to perform the service of the offering. What? Aaron was backed up and hesitated to go forward. Why? 
Aaron knew how to do it. He certainly knew how to walk where he needed to be. Why was he at a distance? Well, Rashi says, based on this midrash, that Aaron was afraid and he was ashamed to approach the altar. Aaron, the pillar, the high priest, was ashamed and afraid. And the Midrash goes so far as to suggest that from a distance as he looked, he saw atop the Mishkan, he saw the, the, the frame of an ox above it. Huh? Oh, Midrash, there you go again. Midrash, you know what Midrash is? Of course, Midrash is an interpretation. It's a story. It's drawn from the text. It may be exactly accurate to the text. It may have happened. It may not have happened. But it's to tell you something. It's to point something out. And oftentimes, I'll read things in Midrash, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like, one time I read about these seven or eight individuals who were born circumcised in Midrash, and I thought, that's silly. Until I came across a term called, forgot what it's called, a past something or other, of being born circumcised. But that's not the point. The Midrash says that he was afraid and ashamed, and that he saw over this thing that he's supposed to do, he saw this outline of this ox. Why? Well, because, and I want to thank one of the many sources that helped contribute to this message, and you won't be surprised, my dear friend, Jonathan Sachs. Has anyone ever heard of, I know one person in this room has, because he's a doctor of psychology. Has anyone ever heard of something called the imposter syndrome? Even the doctor of psychology doesn't know it. This is going to be good. The term was coined in 1978 by clinical psychologists Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. It is a concept describing individuals who are marked by an inability to internalize their, accomplish, their accomplishments and have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. Despite external evidence of their competence, those exhibiting the syndrome remain convinced that they are frauds and do not deserve the success they have achieved. Proof of success is dismissed as luck, timing, or as a result of deceiving others into thinking they're more intelligent or more competent than they believe themselves to be. Anyone ever suffered from the imposter syndrome? 70% of the world suffers from it on a regular basis. So syndrome, the, design, the, the discoverer, the, the coiners of this said, we should have called it the imposter experience. It's not, a, it's not a mental illness. It's a thing that we live with. The fear that we are not all that everyone thinks we are. Okay, great. We're talking about Aaron, the high priest. So what? Well, so what? Think about Aaron. Can you see Aaron 
in that description? Let me help you see him. Aaron the imposter. The tabernacle is completed. The priesthood is being inaugurated. And it is the final day. And the sacrifices are to be offered. And Moses looks to Aaron and he says, Draw near, brother. You're up. And Aaron says, Me? Who? Me? Who am I? I failed. I participated. You might even suggest that I led the golden calf. I let you down, brother. I let the people down. And most importantly, I let God down. Me? Who am I to offer sacrifices for anyone? Not even myself, but especially for an entire people after what I've done? How can it be? And there are times in I think just about every human being's life when we have this question. That we have to be perfect and if anyone finds out what we really are, what we are under the surface will be found out for the imposters that we are. And that, my friends, is a satanic prison cell. Who knows you more than anyone? Your kids, your spouse, your parents. Yeah, they know you, but God knows you. He knows your inner workings. He knows your inner thoughts. And that's terrifying at times, but he does. And Moses says to Aaron, according to the Midrash, Lecha nifharta, for this, for this you were chosen. How? Aaron says. They all saw it happen. They know me. You know me. God knows me. I'm chosen? How? I'm an imposter if I do that. Has anyone ever felt that? Maybe not to that degree. Man, I have. And here's sometimes what this looks like. I've done this, or I've done that, or worse yet, this happened to me. I let someone down, or someone let me down, or I let myself down. And I cannot move past this. I just can't. Ramban explains that Aaron was completely righteous except for that one act at the golden calf. 
That Jewish tradition says Aaron was a man of peace, a lover of people, always seeking to bring everyone to Torah, that he was perfectly righteous except for that one thing, but it was ever before him. Because of his righteousness, because of his longing to please God, to please people, because of that, he would not let himself forget his single failure. But it's Moshe's response according to this that is my favorite part. For this you were chosen. Why would he say that? Well, this is our God, actually. Not Moses. But Moses was certainly close to our God. And Moses had heard the very same thing spoken to himself from his position of inferiority. For this you were chosen. This is our God who takes the broken, the unworthy, let's, unworthy, let's face it. The golden calf thing, it's a pretty big thing. It's a pretty big deal. Even if it was his only sin, it was a very big one. It was a very big deal. And you can understand his feeling me? How can, how? How can God still use me? We have another guy, another, another biblical hero, another pillar in the apostolic scriptures who has a similar story. And you probably already know who he is. Aaron is, our, is a, the Torah stud. He's the pillar of the Torah, the high priest, the big kahuna. But we have this other guy who was also a pretty big deal. A hero who blew it. Blew it. He threw in the towel and said, how can, how? How can it be me? How can God love me? I'm an imposter. I've been found out. I'll never be what you said I was gonna be, God. Ever. Anyone come to mind? You got it. John 21, we see this hero not seeming so heroic. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught caught nothing. Peter, who all the promises has been laid upon him. Peter, you're going to be great. You're going to really, you're going to rock it, rock. You're going to really do it. And so downtrodden now, I'm going out to fish. This is over. Captured, consumed in sin, realizing I'll never be that. I failed. I stink. That's it. And his sin was ever before him. The kind of thing that most people don't come back from. Did he come back? On his own? No, not on his own. He came back in a powerful way when Yeshua confronted him and said in so many words, for this you were chosen. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And we have people like that in here, actually, and I'm one of them. 
I've lived a life at times, and even today I have my moments, I assure you, Kelly can tell you stories, but she won't, that are not perfect. They're not even, they're not even godly moments that I've had and still have. There are a matter of fact things that I'd rather just not ever tell you about and just keep between me and God. And if you knew all the things in my life that I've done that are not pleasing to God, you'd have to wonder how not only am I like a rabbi, how am I even alive? That's the depth. And I know none of you can relate to that. But I bet some of you have made some bad decisions. Things that you're not proud of. Things you regret. Things you'd do differently if you could. But I have news for you. You can't. Because they're done. Marriage stuff. Stuff with kids. Stuff with spouses. With your parents. Your lifestyle. Your choices. Your relationship with God. There are so many areas in life that it is so easy to get messed up. And so many times, it's not even you who did it. Someone did it to you. And if you allow me to get personal for just one second, Kelly and I many times in our religious lives, our religious lives, our proper and pure religious and holy lives, especially as leaders, have felt and lived the imposter syndrome. We've been in communities where you had to do this to be holy. If you weren't doing this, you weren't spiritual. And everyone was always aware of everyone else and wondering, well, how... What, what kind of kids are they raising? They shouldn't let them watch those R-rated movies or any number of other things that are used as a barometer for your holiness. We've been judged on so many levels in so many ways as not being holy enough by whose standard, I don't know. Or not being filled with the Spirit enough by whose standard, I don't know. Are not being good leaders by whose standard I don't know. And we've asked God on some occasions God, are we those things? Are we imposters? Are we posers? Are we trying to be something that we're not? We've made and we continue to make, very rarely for me, mistakes. We don't measure up to a perfect standard of righteousness or the perfect model of what a rabbi and rebbitzin look like or that if you put a camera on us 24-7, it would be like watching the Waltons meet the little house on the prairie where everything's perfect and pure. We don't measure up to that standard of righteousness and we don't have to because someone did. That's a that's a story I can tell you. But I heard something similar in my life, very, very, very similar to what Aaron and Peter heard, and it went something like this. 
In this whole process of this craziness where I find myself standing before you today, I heard God say something along these lines, yes, you made mistakes. Damien, in your case, a lot of mistakes. But do you love me? Yes. And he says, I know about the mistakes, and I knew you were going to make them. I wanted so desperately for you to choose a different path, but that's the one you chose. I was still with you. If you had listened, you would have made a different choice. You didn't, and I get it. And I know you think about those mistakes sometimes. A lot of times, sometimes. And I know you worry about being perfect for everyone. And that if they see that you're just a human being with a whole bunch of cracks and imperfections, that you'll be lowered in their eyes. And I know like Aaron, who asked me, how can I offer these sacrifices, Father, for the people when I am such an imperfect and broken vessel and have failed miserably at times to be what you want me to be? I know, Damien, that you wonder that too, but here's what I want you to hear. I know all that stuff, but come near. And like Moses told his brother, understand something from me. It was for this you were chosen. My son came to be the perfect standard of righteousness for you, and he succeeded, and that work is finished, but I'm not finished with you. Do you love me? Yes, I said. Then follow me. Because for this you were chosen. And I'm putting myself in that, but it's your story too. If you'll see it, I combine Peter and Aaron because we share their stories, my friends. We want to be the one who's never going to let God down. We want to be the one who stands against idolatry as God's hero. We want to be everything that we think looks good to be a great representative for God, and we should try to, and sometimes we do, but maybe more often than not, we don't. But what Moses told Aaron, what Yeshua told Peter, and what your Father in heaven tells you is draw near. Move forward. For this you were chosen. To be paralyzed by past problems prohibits your future progress. You can never be what you want to be when you can't trust that God has taken it from you.
Aaron's window was actually very short because from the golden calf to the time of the dedication, that was not a long time. Aaron had his sin ever before him, but it was a short time. And speaking of sin ever before him, I told you earlier, the Midrash suggests that Aaron was looking at the altar to which he was supposed to offer the sacrifices. And what does he see up there? He sees when God's telling him and Moses is saying, come near, come near, do this. What does he see? He sees the outline of his sin. He sees above the place that is the promise that God's going to bring him. He sees, I suck. Look at this. It's always before me, my sin. As if God had put it there, as if God constantly wants in everything we see to put a reminder for us of who we were and that he's always going to be punishing us about this or that, that we see these cows And for Peter, his denial, from denial to restoration, yes, his sin was ever before him, but it was a relatively short amount of time. As a matter of fact, potentially only about 17 days. His sin being ever before him, yeah, that's a painful 17 days, but it wasn't that long. Some of you, some of the people that I encounter in the world, some of the stories I see, some of the broken, battered, beaten never going to recover people have been having their sin before them for years and have never, ever, ever been able to come near and recognize that for this you were chosen. A long time of regret, of being ever conscious, of seeing yourself through wrong eyes, a long time of seeing oxen plastered all over your path, whatever that ox is symbolic of for you. Of being concerned that no matter what progress you've made, you'll always be tied to that thing or those things that you did or that happened to you. Or that you'll only and always be just an imposter because God knows what you've done. I see so many people and interact with so many people and I look at them and they're hurting on the outside and they're dead on the inside. It's because they can't see it. They can't let it go. But I've got good news. Aaron's story, Peter's story, my story, your story, it's everybody's story in Yeshua. Surrounded by the gracious and merciful God we call Father. He calls us to repentance, receives us, sets us back on our feet, and he says to you, this is what you were made for. Great, Damien. Aaron was the high priest. Peter was the rock. You're the rabbi. What was I made for? What is my this? This is what you were made for. What's my thing? What's my this? I don't know. You got to find it. You got to embrace it. You got to tackle it. You got to search it out and you have to listen. And what I'm saying is you have to lay down anything that's a hindrance to that and you have to draw near and you have to go forward and you have to find your this. And God, yes, he's, he's, he's always faithful and so some people suffer for their sins 
agony, depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome. But God always does good. He takes countless bad choices and countless mistakes and countless hurtful situations, and he turns them for good. Like Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20, my brothers, you intended it for harm, but God for good. I've experienced that, people, and I know you have. I've seen my bad choices become good. I've seen history that can transform, that can, that can some horrible thing where God brings about some good. And Sachs says in this article I read, feelings of inadequacy, the imposter syndrome can be bad news or good news depending on what you do with them. Do they lead you to depression and despair or do they lead you to work at your weaknesses and turn them into strengths? That's what we should do with it. Because there is one who believes in you. At least one, but probably more. In each of our stories, the imposter needed someone to believe in him or her. For Aaron, it was Moses. For Peter, it was Yeshua. Even Moses felt the imposter syndrome, right? Who am I? I can't speak. I can't do this, God. God actually got mad at him, but he did it. Moses, do it. Draw near. This is what you were chosen for. God believed in them. And for all of you, who believes in you? All of the above. All of the above. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Samuel, David, Gideon. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 12. You know what those people are? That's the great cloud of witnesses, right? That stands and, and, and like wants to see you succeed. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Who believes in you? All of the above. But you'll have to believe in yourself. That's a trick. That takes work. That takes practice for some more than others. Sack says this, and this is a quote that I will always remember, and you should too. That is the role that God plays in all of our lives if we are truly open to Him. He believes in you. Can you believe that? He continues and says, I have often said that the mystery at the heart of Judaism is not our faith in God. It's God's faith in us. If that's not enough to empower you, 
that God believes in you, that he has faith in you. I don't have anything better to offer you. Aaron was not an imposter. It was Aaron's behavior when God said, for this you were chosen. It was Aaron's behavior that made him perfect for it because he knew what sin felt like. He knew what it felt like to fail miserably. And he could be the one who could go in and make atonement. And you have whatever it is that you have. And for this, you have been chosen. Aaron was not an imposter and neither are we. In all of these things, Romans says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I would add, if I might, Paul, and believed in us. Whatever lies behind, we push forward. We come near with boldness, knowing we have a this. We have a this for which we have been chosen. And the God of the universe believes in us and waits for us to draw near to him. For this you have been chosen. Shabbat Shalom.